Welcome to Glam City, a show that delves into the world of Sydney's glam sector. That's galleries, libraries, archives and museums. We'll be back in 2019 with fresh voices, big new ideas and new stories from the glam sector. But in the meantime, we're delving back into our archives and looking back at some of our favourite stories. I'm Tamsin Peach. And on this episode, we are speaking to not one, but two live actual historians. If you count Anna and I, that's four historians (laughs) in one room to talk about the history of work in Australia, amongst many other things. Elizabeth is a political economist whose research on civil society's responses to crisis and economic change dominates her work. She's recently finished a book called How Labor Built Neoliberalism. A more apposite book for this moment, I probably can't think of. Thank you for joining us. And Sarah is a Labor historian at the University of New South Wales uh, in Sydney and an associate for the Australian Society for the Study of Labor History and an encyclopedia of monuments to the Titanic in Australia. (laughs) Sarah, hello. Hi there. I forgot to say that Elizabeth is also associate for the Centre of the Future of Work, which is run out of the Australia Institute. Now... You guys are running, you're about to launch a new seminar series based in here in Sydney. Um, it's called Work Past and Present. Could you tell me a bit about how it uh, came to be? Sure. I think Sarah and I were both thinking that labour history in Australia had a, a, a great kind of legacy in terms of putting on seminars, but often these were very focused on celebrating great moments in labour history. What we wanted to do was develop a seminar that kind of did two things, that reflected on those historical moments and historical processes through present issues facing trade unions, workers and changes in work. And we also wanted to make sure that we took a more critical take, that we weren't necessarily just celebrating this great history of um, labour struggle and labour events, but uh, working through the problems of the labour movement in the last sort of 20 to 30 years. So is labour history not about the Labour Party, but about work more specifically for the technical people out there who are wondering what labour history is? This is a pet peeve of mine that I say it's L-A-B-O-U-R. <laughs> um, obviously, the Labor Party is a key part of that history, but um, we want to talk about history from below as well, you know, what ordinary people were doing to try and change their lives. And so you're doing something really fascinating here, which is thinking about the relationship between politics now and history. How is that going to play out in the terms of people you've got speaking? Um, well, I think... <laughs> One of the key things is to talk about uh, the struggles from below, campaigns that people engaged in. Um, The early ones will talk about various oppressions. And so I think looking at how people uh, looked at what was going on in the round, tried to organise, worked in with uh, formal political parties and their trade unions, but also, you know, organise themselves. So what are some of the topics that will be covered? And Well, the first one is about organising works, uh-huh. um, which is an attempt by the labour movement to train up a new generation of uh, union officials who could go into workplaces and particularly I think they were focused on talking to young people you know why is it that um, young people may not join trade unions and what can they do to turn that around. And what has been the the sort of some of the historical reasons why trade unionism seems to be declining in terms of its popularity and maybe also influence in Australia? Sure that's an international phenomenon really particularly in advanced capitalist countries where unionism really fell away in what we call the neoliberal era. So sort of after the recessions of the 1970s and there was a lot of economic change, um, literally say in the US and the UK, 
industry moves from the north of the US into the south where there's lower unionisation rates. Industries that have been well unionised like mining and car manufacture start to fall away and new industries that are less well organised start to grow like service industries. So some of it's about structural changes in the economy then influencing unionisation rates and one of the questions and why the labour movement started organising works was that as union, what we call density, the number of people who were in unions fell, how were they going to try and address that? And organising works is an attempt to try and stem the tide of numbers leaving unions or never joining unions in the mm-hmm. first place. So what we want to talk about is was that why did they do it? Was it successful? And really what are the issues confronting those advanced capitalist countries who that once had lots of union members in Australia it was over over 50% well into the 80s and we're now talking around uh, 13% and 9% in the private sector so we're talking a massive significant change and why is that important to understand do you think what do we hope to learn from these well, events the, i think the the contemporary issue that really confronts us at the moment is wages right wage growth and people's ability to have a good living standard and maintain that living standard is connected to what wages they get. What wages people get is often connected to whether their industry is well unionised or well organised and whether workers can exert some control over um, demanding wages in that particular industry. And that's really fallen away. And we would have seen like the Reserve Bank governor come out and say, workers need to ask for more wages. Well, it's not as simple as that. When you've had unions really, their power crushed in the last 20 years, it's not just that workers aren't asking for more money, it's that because unions have have sort of been disempowered, they haven't been able to get those wage gains. And this is a massive problem for Australia in terms of if workers don't get money and they haven't got money in their pockets, they can't go and buy things. And so what the Reserve Bank Governor was saying, this is in the interests of the whole economy. I think another thing is job security and it's one of the things why I think linking history and today are so important. When we look at people employed in the gig economy, for example, some of those forms of labour are as old as capitalism themselves. So, you know, workers walked up the hungry mile looking for a job two, three times a day. Now they wait at their app thinking, am I going to get work today? Um, Have I been good at work? Am I going to get a tap on the shoulder? Or will they say no, that they ask for too much? So many of those uh, things that we face today have historical um, antecedents that we think young people can learn from and that we can use to help organise. Yeah, on that, you know, historians sometimes say, well, you know, there are lessons from history or, you know, non-historians say we should learn the lessons (laughs) from history. What do you think history... Do you think history does teach us lessons or does it do something else for us now in the political moment we're in? I think it certainly can teach us lessons. We're doing a project on the Westgate Bridge and we want OH&S to be front of people's minds when they look at that tragedy to say, well, we need to learn something about how to make workplaces safer. But I think understanding the historical antecedents of where you've come to helps you understand all sorts of things about why your life is the way it is. So I think it's um, it's enormous on it. It's enormously important on a lot of levels. It also strikes me that it shows us that the world can be different and that banding <laughs> together can create change. Yeah, you know? yeah. Maybe not in the same way as what, what we did in the past, but you know that nonetheless yeah. change can happen. There are a range of historians who've um, announced the end of history, and they've ended up with 
mud on their faces. The sun keeps rising and new days <laughs> keep being formed that Boom. are historical. You mentioned the Westgate Bridge collapse and it would be great to talk mm-hmm. about that now. And you, You've got a shared project on the Westgate Bridge. Thank Could you. you just tell us what happened? Well, in 1970, there was a very important bridge being built in Melbourne. It was supposed to link you know, two formerly separate parts of the city and really take the city forward. It had a range of construction problems that weren't addressed and um, on the 15th of October at about 10 to 12 it collapsed and took 35 lives with it. We want to talk about the collapse particularly to look at what happened but we also wonder about how those workers have been memorialised, you know, what has their legacy been used to say. We've obviously got our own ideas about the importance of occupational health and safety but we wanted to look and see whether the Westgate bridge still lives in people's memories and what sort of message does it say and in terms of that legacy you sort of allude to two there one of them is the sort of labor legacy in a sense Mm -hmm. in terms of the response ohns response and uh, the royal commission that was held afterwards and the sort of government um, measures used so that that might never repeat and then the other on the flip side of that is the the memorialization and the memory and the importance of that moment i suppose in melbourne's history but also in Australia's labour history. Can you talk a little bit about perhaps the first and then the second? What was the legislative response to the Westgate Bridge collapse? Uh, that's what we're looking at at the moment. Employer behaviour in that time didn't have to be terribly uh, strong. Uh, sometimes it was a matter of slinging the wives a few dollars and that was about it. But um, it's also a period where there's a lot of talk about OHS in workplace and further legislation. There's a, a very important and influential report in, um, in England called the Robins Report that starts to look at the importance of involving trade unions in occupational health and safety. So, so, sorry to jump in, but does that, um, was the Westgate Bridge construction really slapdash and were they sort of ignoring, you know, best practice and that sort of thing? Or was it just a, an unforeseeable accident that happened that the people wanted to learn from? Well, I hasten to add that Liz and I aren't engineers, so um, we're reading the transcripts and certainly the um, final report does criticise um, some methods. I think from a labour historian point of view, I look at the um, the contracting arrangements on the bridge and that's a message for today about when corporate responsibility is layered upon layer upon layer, then it sometimes... Um, um, communication is difficult, disorganisation in the labour process and so forth. I think you can definitely say that we can see those things. Mm. And in terms of the memorialisation, Liz, what has been some of the sort of legacies and the memories of this really important moment? I guess our starting point, like some people ask, why are two academics from Sydney interested in the Westgate Bridge? Apart from excuse to go and watch football. Yeah, well, we did <laughs> watch the first round of the <laughs> AFLW while we were down there. But um, Sarah's obviously got a a long interest in labour memorials, but for me, I grew up very close, I was born very close to where the collapse was. And I think in the memories of people, particularly from working class families in Western Melbourne, you're very conscious that the collapse happened. And if you go into Melbourne, what we would call the back way, you go past that memorial and so for me, it's always something that sat with me and you're quite conscious that even if you're not 
well, at that point, I didn't think I had any direct connections to it. But, it, you know, it's a very sad event and the, the memorial was a sad place to sort of go past. So I have those ideas about what the memorial means to me. We're now looking at what is the memorial meant for the survivors and families and particularly the group of workers who set up a memorial committee and have... Um, there's been memorials that have happened every single year since the collapse. We're at 48 years this October. And I think what we want to know is, well, why why is it still going? Why do people still see it as really important to come together every October? And we're just in early stages, I guess, of talking to the people involved uh, about that. Mm. And despite the initial sort of stage of your research, does it feel a little bit like a tale of two cities where this memory is very strong in certain parts of the community, but perhaps in other areas of Melbourne or in government levels, it's not such a, it's not really on the commemorative radar? I think so in terms of just my personal experience of talking and putting on social media that I was working on the project over the last two weeks. So I was at a conference, I um, was speaking to another academic who is an international political economist. These are the sorts of issues she would care about. But she grew up in the east of Melbourne. She didn't know that there'd been a collapse and she certainly didn't know that 35 workers had been killed. And so for me, the geography of Melbourne and how history can play out quite differently is of real interest to me. You know, this bridge was built by a private consortium who wanted particularly to be able to increase accumulation, you know, making money in the west of Melbourne through the petrochemical complexes. And, you know, it wasn't the state government who went and built it. It was a private organisation that was given a whole lot of rights to claim land and build this bridge. Those sorts of issues about private contractors constructing major infrastructure I, don't, I can't think of a more contemporary issue in terms of um, political economy. So I think in terms of the risk that workers are in in workplaces in regards to occupational health and safety and the sort of arrangements that they work under, who's responsible for what? Can they control safety? Can they stop working if they feel unsafe? These, these are really contemporary issues. And maybe this um, process of looking at how those workers have memorialised over the years, trying to highlight that these issues are always an issue in workplaces. Um, I think, for me, that started to come through in the early days of the research. You are listening, listeners, to Glam City on 2SER 107.3. To download this show, head to 2SER.com or, of course, your favourite podcast app and search for Glam City. This is a podcast brought to you by the Australian Centre for Public History at UTS with support from 2SER. And don't forget to leave us a rating. It really helps other people find us. On this episode of Glam City, we're really pleased to hear some global perspectives on repurposing industrial heritage sites for cultural use. And you might be familiar with some of those sites around us, such as down at Piermont, the docks, carriage works. Is there a place near you that's been repurposed in recent years that you can think about? And to talk about this, we want to welcome two guests today. Firstly, Layla Elmus. Hello, Layla. Hello. Layla is a historian with the City of Sydney, and she isn't new to podcasting. Well, it didn't end up being a podcast, but yes, it was a regular segment on FBI radio about Sydney's history. Scratching Sydney surface. That's it. You probably can still find it on your favourite podcast app while you go looking for Glam City. <laughs> 
Thanks for joining us, Leila. And we've also got Stefan Berger, who is a UTS Distinguished Visiting Scholar from Germany at the moment. He is the director of the Institute for Social Movements at the Ruhr University in Bochum, Germany, and chairman of the Committee for the of the Library of the Ruhr Foundation. Hello, Stefan. Hi. So Stefan specializes in nationalism and national identity studies, comparative labor studies, and the history of industrial heritage, which we'll be talking about today. Now, I'm glad we've got both of you here. What is this term heritage? What does it mean? Well, there's a lot of different definitions, aren't there? Um, So I guess one that I guess seems pertinent to the work that I've done over the many years is something that's at risk. So it's something that's old, it's a relic, it's a landscape, it's a place, and it's it's at risk. But it has had different meanings over time, and indeed multiple meanings at the same time. Is, is that How do you understand it? Well, I'm coming um, more from uh, critical heritage studies, and uh, therefore I would probably uh, refer to Laura Jane Smith, uh, who has often emphasized that uh, it's not so much the materiality of something that characterizes heritage, but the meaning-making. Um, so, you know, what meaning do we give uh, particular things, material or immaterial, and why do we do this? Why do we endow certain things of the past with meaning? Mm. So in that sense, uh, Stefan, heritage does change over time as those meanings change. Can you map some of those changes? Are there big shifts that have happened in the way we think? Yes, I think there have been uh, big shifts. I think uh, if you look at the preservationist movement that I guess arises in the 19th century, then they had a particular idea about what was worth preserving, uh, what should belong to heritage, and that was often linked to notions of either regional or national heritage. Uh, that was also often linked to a particular middle or upper class culture. And so, for example, what uh, I'm interested in most, industrial heritage, was only really becoming a form of heritage, arguably from uh, the post-Second World War period onwards. It was not really regarded as uh, a form of heritage before then. There has been a real sense of some of those heritage places becoming special in recent years Uh, and I'm thinking of the history of Sydney because that's what I know the most about but in Germany for example uh, I presume a lot of these places were just developed or redeveloped in time what do you think was the catalyst for them to become special if we're thinking of old industrial sites and so on well, uh, I'm coming from the Ruhr, and the Ruhr is probably the most important industrial heritage region in Germany, and possibly even globally, because we're doing this kind of global project on industrial heritage at the moment, where we compare different regions of heavy industry, and I haven't seen anything quite like the Ruhr uh, anywhere else uh, in the world. So there has been a massive attempt from the 1960s onwards, really, to preserve that industrial what heritage. What sort of sites are we talking about? We're talking about former steelworks former mines, canals, uh, railways, slag heaps, uh, housing estates. So the whole landscape of uh, industry that developed throughout the 19th and 20th century. What does it mean to preserve that extent of a landscape? I mean, there's huge material infrastructure there that you're talking about preserving. Is it rendered a museum? Is it lived in? Is it repurposed, reused? This is a term, reuse. 
It's very different. Um, there have been some of these sites have been turned into major museums. So, for example, you have the main regional museum of the Ruhr area, the Ruhr Museum, which is located on what was the biggest mine in interwar Europe, uh, Zeche Zollverein in Essen. Uh, it's also a UNESCO World Heritage Site now. So you have this museum that was put into the former coal washery um, in quite a daring attempt, I would say, to put a museum into what was, to all intents and purposes, a big machine uh, where very few people actually worked. Um, so uh, you have that. You ha also have um, landscape parks, for example, one of the former steelworks in Duisburg has been turned into a landscape park where the steelworks is part of a wider park landscape where there's a lot of kind of leisure time activity going on from mountain climbing to uh, diving to, uh, well, all sorts of other things. Um, you also have the development of uh, housing or of public buildings, including university buildings or city council buildings on uh, former uh, sites of uh, mines. So it's a very diverse kind of repurposing that is going on, but it's certainly true to say that a lot of it would be impossible without public subsidies. Although the main mining company has a subsidiary company, RAG Montan Immobilien, which only is transforming former mining sites into something else into kind of post-mining sites, and they are very profitable. So uh, there's also money to be made there. What would be the equivalence in Sydney? Well, we do have a number of sites that, you know, when Stefan's talking that I can think of. So we do have sites that have been repurposed into parks. So um, a lot of people might be familiar with the large chimneys, which are at Sydney Park, and that's a former brickwork site. Um, and that whole site has been remediated, so it's into public space, but you still have these remnants of... Um, industry, which are on the on the edge of that park, and are also sort of a signposting it and a and a landmark, and also the Paddington Reservoir Gardens, which is an old reservoir, nineteenth century piece of water infrastructure. Um, and when when works were being done, they sort of appreciated the aesthetic qualities. So it's it sort of has these arches. It's something that's been designed by engineers. So it's got that sort of quite I th personally I think it's quite beautiful so it's got this sort of elegance to it so you've got those sorts of things but then we also have other other sites which are sort of dotted throughout the city so we mentioned carriage works before also of course that's part of the former Everly railway yards and on the other side of the tracks is actually the Australian Technology Park and they have very different approaches to conservation there and I think you have very different experiences in the space so the fabric is maintained in both situations but the way it's interpreted also really mediates how you experience the space and then there are other things so powerhouses seem to be kind of a popular thing to convert into public use and sort of cultural use so in Canberra there's like a powerhouse it's the glass works we've got consular powerhouse and also of course the powerhouse museum which you know if you haven't actually been in there for a while it's actually a good reminder to go inside of it and see because it's pretty much mm. intact um, apart from being used as a museum space so and I do think it's interesting because we're talking about these things that we're valuing as cultural heritage essentially as cultural assets even and they do have a monetary kind of benefit and a social well-being benefit but it's really at the moment of deindustrialization, really that they start to kind of gain a currency and mm. appreciation and and I would say there's sort of a certain nostalgia 
that is also linked to that. But I think it's quite complex because of the way people work and use that space. It's interesting thinking about that idea of nostalgia because these industrial sites were the sites of thousands, tens of thousands of people going every day to work at them. And so the deindustrialization, I guess, is also a reminder of big changes in employment and often a change from employment to unemployment. How does that play out in, the, in, I guess, the memories, people's memories? I would say it very much depends on how successful the economic restructuring of those regions um, has been. There obviously have been regions where this has not been very successful, such as, for example, in the Rust Belt of the United States or also um, in um, northern Italy. Um, in Asturias, in Spain, there is often a certain bitterness um, about the memory of deindustrialization, which uh, also is very region-specific, the way it finds expression. For example, in Asturias, um, it is linked with a strong memory of political uh, labor movement that had a long history of revolutionary struggle, and that is seen as a kind of... uh, positive antidote to the kind of apathy and uh, the lack of future, in particular for the young uh, in that region. In regions where economic structuring has been more successful, such as the rural region in Germany, I think there is uh, now an almost a kind of all-party consensus about the merit of industrial heritage, which is seen as a kind of reminder of a proud history of the region on which a new future can be built. So that's a very kind of different kind of um, Mm. uh, meaning-making. Using heritage for future looking or some anticipation isn't it in a way exactly yes yeah and yeah. as industry heritage as industry too, yes you know, kind of mm. creative yes. reuse a heritage of, industry yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. which it, complicates some of the critical approaches perhaps um it does to a certain extent for example i think the uh, enormously homogenous landscape of industrial heritage in the Ruhr is built on what developed after 1945 in Germany and that in the English-speaking countries is mostly referred to as Rhenish capitalism. So a particular form of corporatism in which the state, employers and uh, unions work together. So there is little notion of antagonism and that also means that the antagonism that was there in the region in the past Uh, is often falling by the wayside in sort of uh, memorial practices. So uh, there are certain things that are remembered and there are certain things that are silenced in that memorial landscape. And I think it has to do with the way in which the regions define themselves presently and how much contention there is about the past in those regions. Could you say a bit more about which voices get heard, particularly in the Ruhr? Well, I think it's a kind of landscape in which there is the notion that uh, coal and steel have been very important for building the region, that um, the region has then become very important for building the nation, because in some respects this is the powerhouse of German industrialization, and therefore one of the regions in which, if you like, the origins of Germany's rise to a major power in 19th century Europe uh, is located. So you have a kind of regional mindscape, but you also have a kind of national mindscape uh, that is um, endowed with meaning through industrial heritage. There is a strong technological bent to the heritage, the kind of innovation that came from the region. 
Um, um, it still is a region in which you have uh, leading export companies for mining technology, which are now uh, not so much um, delivering to uh, the Ruhr, but delivering to places like Australia or China, where there's actually still active mining going on. So, um, But what you perhaps get less is a kind of notion of industrial conflict, of a kind of communist past, because the Ruhr was also uh, one of the bastions of German communism in the 1920s during the Weimar Republic. And remember that Germany had the biggest communist party in the world outside of the Soviet Union. So um, there are certain elements, in a way, that um, do not get the same attention, although it would, I think, be unfair to say that they're completely silenced, because if you go, say, to the Ruhr Museum in Essen, you will find references to that. And, I mean, in, what about the kind of environmental impacts of mining? I mean, that's something that we're very conscious about in the present, but in the ways we remember these mine sites, is that present as well? That is really fascinating in the Ruhr, because you have, for the last 15 or 20 years, uh, a discourse developing about uh, the industry, uh, mining and steel, being very detrimental to the environment, destroying the environment, uh, reshaping the environment to an incredible extent. But then you also have a kind of uh, narrative where, if you like, the main protagonists, uh, politicians, uh, industrialists, uh, unionists, have seen the light and there is a kind of healing process which goes alongside deindustrialization. So deindustrialization is portrayed as a great opportunity for uh, bringing back nature. So that brings us to the end of Glam City for today. You can listen to us anytime you like. It you don't have to, you know, have a diary entry. Just download us straight to your mobile device or the 2SER website at 2SER.com. You can also hit us up on Twitter. You'll find me, Tamsin, as Cap and Gown and me, Anna, as at Anna Hope Clark. And you can probably find Layla on Twitter too. I'm Layla Mouse. Layla Mouse. Uh, this is a podcast made by the Australian Centre for Public History with support of the wonderful 2SER 107.3. So thanks to you, Layla and Stefan. We'll see you Thank back you. here uh, next week for more Glam Conversations. Whoa, Glam out. Glam out. Thank you.